0: The story of the martyrdom of Hussein, the prophet Muhammad's grandson, is recounted annually around the world. More broadly, the communal retelling of the lives of Shia imams has played an important part in shaping Shia identity and practice. Matthew Pierce examines the early canonization of these life stories in Twelve Infallible Men, The Imams and the Making of Shiism, published with Harvard University Press in 2016. Pierce carefully conceptualizes the relationships between history, author, text, and audience through an examination of several collective biographies of the twelve Imams from the 10th through the 12th centuries. From this subgenre, several themes arise in the presentation of the Imams, their families, and their actions. Martyrdom is central to the retelling not only of Hussein, but of all the Imams. The Imams' deaths are remembered through images of suffering and mourning, but structured in ways that provide solace for the audience. The collective biographies also offer representations of the imam's bodily performance and communicate idealized forms of masculinity. Accounts of women in the biographies also help in establishing gender norms for the audience. In our conversation, we discuss the social role of biography, collective memory, medieval Sunni and Shia identities, gendered bodies, birth narratives, devotional practices, Imam Ali's primordial existence, martyrdom, and the narrative relationships between the Imams. I'm one of your co-hosts, Christian Peterson, and thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. And here's my conversation with Matthew Pierce. Welcome, Matt. Thanks for joining us on New Books in Islamic Studies. Thank you for having me. So your book, Twelve Infallible Men, The Imams and the Making of Shiism, is a wonderful read. You've really uh, done a great job of making it accessible to, to anyone. It was very well written. And the way you frame this book is, is uh, really helpful, I think, not only to people that are interested in Shiism or Islamic studies, but I think anyone really uh, studying myth, traditions, uh, biography, they're really going to uh, learn a lot from your book. So I hope people will, will pick it up. Thank you. So uh, it's our tradition here at New Books on Islamic Studies to, to find out a little bit about our authors before we dive into the content of the book. So could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in Islamic studies, perhaps uh, moments or individuals in your life that were kind of formative and sending you to where you are now?
1: Sure, I'd be happy to. So my own uh, journey into Islamic studies has its own kind of weird twists of personality and uh, uh, strange events that came about. So I actually grew up not in a very religious house, but I got involved myself in a very conservative Christian environment as a teenager. So really, for a very long time, uh, from the time I was in uh, junior high school, I was taking religious questions very seriously. And I was in a Christian environment. I grew up in Tennessee. I got very involved in this conservative Christian uh, community and was very active there, uh, was interested in taking on leadership roles there, and at that point actually became interested in the Middle East and Islam because I wanted to be a Christian missionary to Muslims. And I went to college uh, still more or less in that mindset, went to a very conservative Christian college for my undergraduate and did biblical studies at that, uh, at that college. But during that time as a, as a college student, I took a semester abroad. I went to Cairo, Egypt for a semester, and that was the Ironically, that was the first time, despite uh, uh, thinking that I wanted to be a Christian missionary to the Middle East, that was the first time that I had really encountered any Muslims. I didn't know any Muslims in my small suburban town in Tennessee. Uh, If I did, I didn't know that they were Muslim. And so it was the first time that I began to encounter the Islamic tradition as a living tradition on its own terms and not simply through books, or and specifically not through books that uh, Christians uh, and Christian missionaries had written about evangelism. And that wasn't necessarily a dramatic turning point, but it was the beginning of a turning point. After I graduated from college, I moved to Egypt, went back, and began studying Arabic. I was, uh, uh, a year and a half later, awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to do some research and Senai Yemen, and after that spent several years living in Qom, Iran, for uh, doing a interfaith, interreligious dialogue program. And throughout those uh, years living in the Middle East, I was on my own journey of faith and, and became very interested, and this does uh, tie into some of the interests that come out in this book, uh, became very interested in the uh, Boundaries between religious traditions and how those boundaries are imagined and why they are placed in certain places or certain markers are seen as the things that determine where those boundaries lie. I became very interested in the blurring of boundaries. So throughout those years living in the Middle East, I became very enchanted, if you will, uh, uh inspired perhaps by portions of the Islamic tradition had moved away from uh, any kind of interest in Christian evangelism and rather had begun in my own personal life to sort of blur the boundaries between uh, Christian identity and Muslim identity. But I was also during the time in Iran becoming very familiar with the Twelver Shia tradition. And so there's a whole lot of things going on in, uh, in my sort of personal life, as I began uh, after all of that to begin graduate studies uh, at Boston University in Islamic Studies. But that's how I got to that point. Boston University became a, another very fortuitous moment for me because I uh, was able to study under Dr. Keisha Ali, who also further influenced me uh, in in my scholarship and the kinds of questions that I ask. And and, and I think that shows up in the book uh, significantly as well.
0: Now, can you talk a little bit about how this project began to emerge as a book itself and how you conceptualize the project uh, early on? Sure. So as I mentioned,
1: I've been very interested in how certain religious identities come into being, and how we imagine the boundaries of those identities. And at that point in in graduate school at Boston University, I was interested in how our conceptions of the differences between what we would popularly refer to as Sunni and Shia traditions, how those boundaries developed. And I was fascinated by the realization that it wasn't so simple as a succession dispute after the death of the prophet, there was likely a succession dispute, but that that event itself didn't determine the way in which Sunni and Shia identities would unfold historically. And rather what we've come to know and think of popularly as Sunni and Shia uh, took a much longer historical trajectory to unfold and develop. And so I was very interested in how that boundary came into being, how our conceptions of the differences between those communities came into being, and why. And initially, I was looking into issues of Islamic legal theory and looking at developments of. Uh, Twelver Shia, uh, legal thought. But at the same time, what at the time I didn't realize would become such an, a, uh, uh, formative part of my scholarship, I was taking classes, as I mentioned, with Kisha Ali. I also took, uh, some, uh, very important classes with, uh, a scholar. At Boston University, Jennifer Knunst, who works on early Christian texts, but also works with issues of gender and narrative. And in those formative moments, uh, studying with both of them, I began to be very interested in the issues of stories, gender, uh, how one imagines the body the human body, uh, the social body, the relationship between those two things. And w- during that time period, uh, one of the books that really perhaps most directly inspired the kinds of questions that I wanted to ask in the book that I did end up writing was Elizabeth Castelli's work on martyrdom called Martyrdom and Memory, which is an er- a work on early Christian culture-making, early Christian martyrdom narratives, actually, in which she looks at the way in which stories told about early Christian saints and martyrs were themselves acts of memory-making. They were acts of culture-making. They provided, by telling the stories in which they, the way in which they were told, they helped create and sustain a foundational narrative that itself helped make sense of the circumstances in which the community lived and helped develop the culture in a particular direction. And as I was reading that, that work, I began thinking about how the stories of the imams that I had known about and read about in my time living in Iran had heard many stories uh, at a popular level – uh, from friends and so forth, but began thinking about how the questions that, that Elizabeth Castelli had asked in, in her work of, about early Christian saints, what if you asked those same kinds of questions about the Shia Imams, who I already knew, uh, and it's well known, that, that, that martyrdom plays a very important role in the stories of the Shia Imams. Imam Hussein, obviously, uh, uh, is particularly prominent in that regard. But I wanted to think about how those questions would play out in looking at the development of stories about the Imams and what role the stories of the Imams may have played in the development of a kind of distinct Shia culture and social memory. And I came to feel convinced that they have, in fact, played a very critical role in that development. And that's what I tried to kind of bring to the fore and analyze in the book.
0: And you do a really excellent job uh, through these sources that you're looking at. And uh, the kind of theoretical angle that you're taking, I think, is very helpful in in thinking about these uh, narratives in more complex ways than perhaps they've been uh, examined in the past. So C- Congratulations and thank you for that. Thank you. Could you uh, discuss a little bit about your archive? Uh, you you select some particular texts um, for various reasons, uh, but they're all part of this kind of subgenre of collective biographies. Um, can you talk a little bit about well, what these texts and authors are all about, um, and perhaps place it within? Uh, the the social and historical context um from which they came in the sense of you you do a, a very good job of kind of parsing out what you've already alluded to this idea that shiism uh is was not the same thing that perhaps we think it is today during the the 10th through 12th century so mm-hmm. what what was the context for Writing about the imams uh, who why did you select the particular text you did and what what can we learn from them
1: right <clears throat> well the in the book I'm there's a number of different arguments that I'm trying to uh, put forth and 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 some of them are in different areas and and one of the the most basic uh, things that I'm trying to accomplish in the book is simply to convince uh, the reader that That we ought to recognize these as their own subgenre, because I don't think they have been uh, really identified as such um, in other works, and at least not consistently. They often the works that I identify here in this in this book and focus upon are often treated. uh, Some of them are treated as historical works, and other of them are treated as. miracle stories or hagiography and they get kind of, some of them are treated as Hadith works and all of them have those kinds of uh, literary elements. But I wanted to, in this book, make the case that there is some good justification for identifying these collective biographies of the Imams as their. Own sort of subgenre, in the sense that they were uh, um, impacted by one another. They were uh, uh, developing their own kinds of concerns, uh, themes, motifs, uh, cultivating a certain kind of emotional disposition related to the stories. And those are the things that I try to tease out some throughout the book. So. Uh, it's not really necessarily a foregone conclusion that these books that I've collected together and argued are are a subgenre, that that's really the case. So uh, hopefully you're convinced. But in any case, um, what I did was I was very interested in when Shia scholars began to write not just an individual story about an imam, or even a collection of stories about one single imam. But what came to be a very predominant later on, centuries later, uh, and into the contemporary period, what came to be a very predominant uh, uh, genre, I think, is are these collective biographies that put this, the stories of all 12 of the imams together into a single volume. And I think that has its own kind of uh, really ideological impact uh, by putting them together in that way it says something by itself and uh, influenced the way that the genre developed. And so what I did was try to find the earliest existent uh, examples of these collective biographies of all 12 Imams, which, uh, of course, since the 12th Imam went into hiding in the 9th century, this doesn't come into being until after the 9th century uh, and really into the, the, the 10th century in terms of editions that are still, still exist. And so, uh, whereas in other genres in Islamic uh, literary tradition, we might talk about the formative period of them being in the 8th and 9th century, in this case, because I'm talking about collections of biographies of all 12 imams, uh, those don't really begin to appear until the 10th century. And then beginning in the 10th century, you have uh, a number of examples, some of them are were just too short to really be useful for this study. They're really just collections of, they're just um, uh, glorified lists, really, lists of the imams, maybe with a few details about births and deaths and so forth. Uh, But I wanted to pick some that were, the ones that were substantive and really gave stories. And uh, until you get some form of the genre that's, Solid and stable, and and I wanted to argue here that by the 12th century, especially with Ibn Shahrashub's Menalke book, uh, you, by that time you really have a, a fairly stable subgenre of literature that then gets repeated and uh, recycled and, and and built upon and, and expanded in various ways into the contemporary period. And so within that that uh, two three century period, I. Uh, just picked the ones that were substantive and were used within the Twelver Shia tradition, and that led me to these these five works. Uh, some of them more well known than others. Sheikh uh, Mufid's Kitab al irshad or a Book of Guidance, is uh, by far the most uh, well known, uh, partly because it's been translated into English, but but also uh, uh, it's just. One of the standard works in the, in the genre, and so I took these five pieces and identified those, and then tried to look at where where the similarities lie, what 's uh, being carried on through this literary tradition and and then what 's also different and some of the differences are really tell us some strikingly important things about how the Shia community is developing in terms of ideas and content and so forth. So when those biographies begin, those collective biographies begin to appear in the 10th century, and this is where I'm I'm kind of making a tenuous case, where people would date the um, uh Origins or beginnings of what can really be called Twelver Shiism is up for debate, uh, but I think that even by this time, which is a, I'm arguing for a relatively late date, uh, even by this time in the 10th century, what is referred to as Shiism is uh, far far more fluid and porous than it would be in subsequent centuries. That it had until that time been very closely tied to explicitly political uh, uh, claims about rightful authority, both religious and political claims, but uh, with with the strong political connotations. But there were groups of scholars in the Twelfth Shia tradition who, with the disappearance of the Twelfth Imam, so the Twelfth Shia tradition, uh, as many of the listeners will know, the Twelfth Imam goes into a kind of permanent hiding and the occultation and is alive, and but he's not present in the way that people can uh, talk to him freely and so forth. And so he's no longer a political threat, really. Uh, by the 10th century, the community is coming to terms with the fact that his disappearance is a long-term event, not a short-term event. And so there's not the sense that there's a ruler coming to overthrow the government right now, but rather a more long term thinking being uh developed and in that sense, they become less explicitly politically uh engaged or concerned with um, uh, rightful authority in politics, and thinking more about what the imams mean for the community in terms of uh, ritual and religion and uh, how the community can sustain itself, even though there's not a rightful authority that's going to be in place anytime soon. How do we live as a community in a world in which that's just not happening? Uh, so instead of expecting someone to come uh, right away, it's, it's dealing with the reality that it's going to be a while, and uh, so it's in that context in which the collective biographies of the imams, I think, are really doing something significant. They are charting out a narrative of history, marking out a a, a, a social memory, a story, a narrative of history that can do that for the community, can carry this community through this time of realizing that this change is not coming right away and and um, making something sustainable, making a past that is usable for that community to endure and to live uh, long-term. And in that sense, I think it was a very shaping for the community to have this literature. They gave a, a narrative that helped make sense of their past and put them, uh, enabled them to think about uh, uh, the future in a different way.
0: Now, you mentioned earlier that martyrdom plays this very central role in the biographies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about Uh, in these texts that you're looking at, how are the imams' deaths remembered? Um, What purposes did they serve from your reading? And how did, uh, how do people reflect on these in notions of of grief and suffering for the community? Uh, You also go through and look at how uh, imams uh, are remembering the deaths of other imams. So, how are how are they uh, interconnected through these narratives that you look at? Right, and and this is
1: where some of my work on this began. As I mentioned, uh, Elizabeth Castelli's work on martyrdom kind of inspired some of these questions. And initially, when I be- began pursuing some of this this project, uh, this began as as a dissertation, and I was thinking that I, the book might be. Specifically about martyrdom and suffering uh, of the imams, because that is a set, It is such a pervasive theme within the literature—not just their deaths, but their uh, betrayals, which I which I also do uh, deal with in the book. But their betrayals and their deaths and the suffering and the suffering of the family and so forth. But I also wanted to do do uh, point out some of the other elements of this this literature as well. But so it is a hugely important part of it one of the things that I was most struck by in looking at this, the development of this genre was how you could actually see at times and in very concrete ways, occasionally how certain ideas that were once thinkable to a community later become unthinkable. And this is, Brings in the kind of larger concepts about social memory and how and why we tell stories that I find this so fascinating in this in this kind of work, but you can see, for example, that uh, uh, Sheikh Mufid, who is uh, this kind of tenth and early eleventh century, uh, hugely important Twelver Shia scholar in Baghdad, one of the most influential scholars of the period uh, for the Shia, he explicitly. In his book, uh, cast doubt and uh, on the idea that several of the imams had actually died uh, a martyr's death. He didn't think that happened. He had, and he didn't feel that that was an important uh, doctrine or belief to hold. Uh, it, it was, it was very possible for him and presumably the community around him to be perfectly fine with the idea that not all of the imams died a martyr's death; that they weren't all killed by uh, their enemies and so forth, that some of them may in fact have died a natural death. And yet, despite the just immense influence that Sheikh Mulfide has had in this genre, and basically all subsequent writers in this genre up to the contemporary period have had access to and used Sheikh Mufid's book, and so everyone is well familiar with his stance on this issue. And yet within a few centuries that even considering the possibility that, that some of the Imams may not have died a martyr's death is, is increasingly unthinkable. It just simply uh, begins to no longer be considered. Uh, In fact, I was really quite struck by looking at contemporary uh, Shia biographies, collected biographies of the Imams, and, and struggling to find anyone who would even, uh, within that genre, even acknowledge that or mention the fact that uh, Sheikh Mulfide had, had cast doubt on the idea that all of the Imams uh, died a martyr's death. And, and so you see the power of an, a concept that was once thinkable, later becoming unthinkable, uh, within the paradigm that had emerged within 12 Rashiism, there, there, becomes a certain kind of logic that unfolds within and through this genre. And that's part of what I'm trying to uncover in this, in this book. A kind of logic that unfolds that no longer can make sense of the idea of a mom not dying a martyr's death. It, it becomes, um, uh, it doesn't seem plausible anymore. I don't think that there were, it wasn't that scholars were trying to cover up the idea that Sheikh Mufid believed this. It just didn't strike anyone as a plausible thing to think anymore. It wasn't really likely because as this genre develops, there develops a kind of logic where the imams are certain kinds of people. They are the best of men. They are, the leaders who should have been uh they are the rightful guides, they are all these things, and as such as a category of uh, the reasons that they have to endure the certain things like uh being killed or not being um Uh, not being able to achieve actual political power in certain circumstances or being abused in certain ways at times or suffering. The reason they endured those things were precisely because they were these types of people. And so under that logic, if an imam were to have not endured that kind of suffering and not been martyred, then it would actually call into question whether that person was really a bona fide Imam because it just, it just makes sense that if, if he was really an Imam, he would suffer the same fate that all the ima- other Imams had suffered. And so the, the martyrdom narrative, uh, among other things, really helped me tease out the way in which the logic of the genre unfolds and develops uh, uh, across the centuries.
0: In a few places throughout the book, across chapters, you think about gender in very specific ways. And uh, one way that I thought was really interesting was about the imams' bodies and how they become idealized. So can you talk a little bit about what did representations of uh, their bodily performance communicate about masculinity in these narratives? And then on the other side, How were women depicted in the lives of the imams?
1: Right, right. So this was, uh, became a really, uh, uh, eventually became a really central part of the book and something that I am still want to do some more work on in the future and and, am quite fascinated by. Much of, uh, as you know, much of the work on gender studies, broadly speaking, Within Islamic studies, within religious studies, and so forth, has been focused on the roles of women. It has been issues of uh, uh, female authority, uh, 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 and, and so forth, ma- mainly focused on women. And the gendered aspect of men and masculinity has received much less attention. And so now I'm, I have before me this body of literature that is dedicated to outlining the lives of these 12 men it seemed uh, obvious that I need to look at and consider what it meant to be a man in this context what, what, what the biographers uh, felt was at stake in the depiction of the imam's masculinity and what uh, uh, as you as you bring up we can know about their understandings of the body and masculinity in the depictions of these men. And so I do try to highlight that uh, uh, that question within this study that we should be asking those questions. Um, one of the, the interesting tensions that is present throughout this genre of literature puts it back again in relationship to the martyr narratives and the fact that these the imams all uh in this genre generally are understood to have died martyrs death are are understood to have suffered and and basically their bodily potential did not reach fulfillment they were their bodies were vulnerable they were uh, uh put into prison they were abused they were uh, you could say emasculated in some ways. So the, for the biographers of this, this literature, they were dealing with a tension in which, on the one hand, they were coming into it with the presupposition that these were the best of men, that by definition, the imams are the best of men. And so they have to be, in some ways, uh, paradigms of masculinity. And yet, they, uh, they're they vulnerable. They don't reach fulfill, fulfill, fulfillment. They don't uh, do the things that the biographers uh, understand male bodies being designed to do, meaning in their best uh, uh, fulfillment should be uh, have authority over others and be able to uh, do certain things at their own volition and yet the, the imams weren't always able to do that and so the biographers have to walk uh, a very interesting uh, tension with how to carry both of those things at the same time and not allow the, the suffering of the imams to call the imams masculinity into question and 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 i argue there that Uh, This is why within that chapter I I bring up the issue of miracles. I think that the miracle accounts within the biographies, while the miracle accounts do many different things, they're they're seen as general proofs of of the imam's uh, validity and authority and all kinds of levels. Um, They can be read in many different ways, but I think one of the things that they also do, among others, is to help offset the vulnerability of the imams' bodies. And it makes it clear for the audience, meaning for the reader and for the, for the community for whom these stories uh, are, are given, it makes it clear to them that the imams do, in fact, have this control. They have this power. Uh, they are the ones, really, uh, who can do what they want but it creates a sort of more voluntary um, suffering, that they embrace the suffering. They don't uh, – it's not that they were victims of suffering that they couldn't avoid. It's not that they uh, went into battles and were defeated. It's rather that they uh, willingly adopt this role of suffering. It's it's painful. It's sad. They cry. They uh, cry. Uh, They cry for each other, they cry for their family, and in that, in doing so, they model for the audience the proper kind of response to the suffering of the family. So seeing the imams cry for their uh, brothers or fathers or so forth who have died gives the cues to the audience about how we ought to feel about that death as well. Uh, so it, the Imam's suffering serves these kind of layers of purposes in terms of making sense of the historical fate of the Imams, that they did not uh, uh, achieve political power and that they're not, in fact, the uh, rulers of the community in any real uh, uh, overt sense, but also making sense of of how we can... Uh, how we should feel about that; those events as a community. How how we should react to it. How we should commemorate it, uh, and that this wasn't just women's work uh, within the early Islamic tradition. There's been numerous writers that I uh, bring up who've talked about how the the mourning ceremonies, explicitly the heavy wailing and crying and uh excessive mourning kinds of things that were often uh frowned upon by uh by some scholars uh of the time period this was actually kind of embraced within this literature and not made just uh, a women's work which was often associated with uh women's activities at the time but rather uh even the, the men do this uh wailing and and crying and shedding of tears over one another, and it, it gives uh, the audience cues on how to uh, respond to these, to these narratives.
0: The women within the lives of the imam are often depicted in these narratives as well, uh, both sometimes in positive ways, but uh, often in negative ways. Can you talk a little bit about their role in these uh, biography narratives?
1: Right, right. Sorry. So I forgot to come back to that. Yeah. And and that is uh, very interesting. So I do have, uh, despite the fact that the book is about the stories about the Twelve Imams, I chose to model the book itself on how this genre that's about the Twelve Imams always, almost without exception, includes uh, a, a quite substantive uh, biography of some of the women, especially, especially uh, nearly always Fatima, uh, the daughter of the Prophet and wife of Ali, and mother of the second and third moms. So she stands, Fatima stands at this kind of central point within many of the most important narratives. But she's not the only woman who has a very elevated and favorable. Uh, Casting uh, within this this literature, and what I found with some surprising consistency was that it, it overlapped with the kinds of roles that the individual women, women had in relationship to the imams. Uh, ex- explicitly, that the mothers of the imams, as well as the daughters of the imams when they are mentioned they're they're more or less always in a positive light and they're elevated and they're spoken highly of and given all kinds of praises obviously fatima by far and away the most others like zainab as well but then there are other women specifically most notably the wives of the imams now here some of the wives of the imams were and would become mothers of the imams. So those wives looked great. They were elevated and praised and all of that. But any of the wives of the imams, and 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 most of the imams would have uh, multiple wives and um, and concubines within their lifetime. Any of those wives and concubines of the imams who were not the Mothers of the next imam, or at least were not mothers of any of the children of the imams. those wives tended to either be cast in a very negative light or be just kind of forgotten entirely so it just would be some people would mention their name, others would just uh, just choose not to mention them at all, and they just kind of drop out of the picture in 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 many cases, a number of the martyrdom stories about the imams. Ha- tie into this very important motif of the deceptive wife. So you ha- uh, have stories that that are being drawn upon that go far beyond the Islamic tradition, uh, this kind of motif of the deceptive wife that you see in other literary traditions and religious traditions. Um, but it's built upon here. And so a number of the imams are uh, said to have been poisoned by their wives, um, and some of the the polemical discussions of Aisha uh, the, the young wife of Prophet Muhammad also is cast in a negative light uh, and so the women within the stories some of them are, are highly praised, others are cast in a very negative light and their roles in relationship to their moms play a very important role in that. Uh, Fatima has a a special elevation. I think that uh, I argue here that she actually in her performances in terms of what she does uh, and, and and a few of the other uh, really important women like Zainab, they actually challenge some of the gender categories that are only implicit within the, within the genre uh, but they challenge their own categories because they they are presented in very imam like fashions they they do things very much like the imams um, they even to the to the level of being spokespersons at times for the imams or being protectors of the imams in certain circumstances and so they they occasionally perform these um what are otherwise within the genre seen as kind of masculine activities. But in those cases, they are usually uh, discursively tied to how the enemies of the imams are simultaneously being portrayed. So the the women like Fatima and Zainab and, and those who are highly elevated become uh, in their sort of imam-like activities they become implicit uh, uh, condemnations of the enemies of the imams who are male but not being very masculine so these these women are are ironically kind of more masculine than the enemies of the imams and then this becomes a way of kind of uh subtly and implicitly critiquing the 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 claim that these enemies of the imams, usually the the, uh, Sunni caliphs, are uh, criticizing their claim to be rightful male authorities because, look, even even our women are more masculine than you are, uh, is kind of the implicit uh, criticism at times.
0: Now, another place where women are uh, part of the story is you, you focus in on the birth stories. Um, so, what are we told in these birth narratives? Uh, why do you believe they're included when they're not included in other types of literatures? And how do these stories structure uh, de- the devotional needs of the community?
1: Right. So, yeah, that was one of the one one of the interesting things that I was struck by is is how frequently at least some mention of the birthing of the imams was made, and and. It, there is a great deal of difference and some in some cases, the biographers don 't go into much detail, but they would at least mention when the Imam was born, where the Imam was born, to whom the imam was born, which again, just the, the mere fact that they were interested in mentioning the names of the mothers of the imams is is striking when compared to many other uh, similar kinds of uh, collective biographies and other uh, uh, genres and so forth. And so you do have this consistent naming of places and times and and, uh, um, names of mothers and so forth uh, that I think itself played a role in some of the devotional concerns of the community. I think was actually responsive to and helped sustain some of the devotional concerns of the community who wanted to know where the Imams were born, who Wanted to, uh, perhaps go and visit places where these events had happened. But also by naming these events as such, it gives them the significance that, um, that was developing within the community. And in some cases, and I, I I note a a number of them in the, in the, the final chapter. In some cases, these stories are, are elaborate elaborate upon in just fantastic ways. Uh, they may be some of the most fantastic stories in the biographies, um, the, the stories of how some of the Imams are conceived, how uh, the role of light and fruit and sperm and uh, all kinds of things getting mixed into heavenly visions and uh, being brought down to people and uh, so forth is just quite remarkable. Very vivid imagery at times, and the the overwhelming sense in my mind from a lot of these uh, stories was the what I what I keep calling in the book this kind of cosmic significance that the, that the imams were significant and important beyond just. Uh, the time in which they lived. It wasn't just that the imams were uh, people who should have been leaders in their day. It's not just that they were the people who should have succeeded the Prophet Muhammad in his authority in some past age. Rather, it is making a more uh, uh, timeless, a, a timeless claim about the imamate and who the imams are in their very essence that their appearance into the world are these kind of cosmic events in which light from all ends of the earth shines and visionary experiences occur and uh the mothers are uh having these painless childbirths with no blood and so the children are perfectly pure and frequently the imams appear uh they, they are birthed and at the moment they are birthed they are already uh, praying uh, in Sajda and saying the Shahada and speaking and walking and talking and teaching and so they, they just have these kinds of lots of miraculous imagination around the stories of their birth because I think this this kind of liminal uh, uh, transition, from these cosmically important beings into their real reality on earth is such a critical uh, transition. And so these these birth narratives really call the reader to that and help inspire the reader and, and maybe even just simply entertain the reader at times, but inspire the reader to feel that these really are people worthy of of our attention, uh, of, our, of our devotion, of our love, and that kind of thing, and really helps sustain that narrative of, of these imams being so important.
0: Now, you cover much more in the book, obviously, and unfortunately we don't have time to, to go into great detail about everything, but is there anything that you really um, you, you want listeners to know about from the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about? I think that one of the less explicit
1: suggestions that I'm trying to, to make in the book goes to some of the core questions that we grapple with within religious studies as a, as a, as a field of scholarship about how we think and talk about religion, about religious traditions, uh, about Again, going back to where I began in terms of where the boundaries of religions lie, how we conceptualize those boundaries. In the conclusion, I mentioned that scholars have talked about the differences between Sunni and Shia forms of Islam frequently in terms of uh, particular historical events, the succession dispute, the martyrdom of uh, the killing of, of Haman Hussein. Or some other scholars have talked about these differences in terms of legal disputes. Uh, Sometimes people have talked about the the differences in terms of specific rituals, uh, the Ashura processions, uh, uh, these kinds of things. While all of those things clearly play a role in in these kinds of how we see and imagine the differences between uh, uh, Sunni and Shia communities, and I think that what I wanted to foreground in this book was the way in which how we tell stories, how we tell stories about our past, how we tell stories uh, um, about imp- people who are important to us, how that very act is itself a shaping act. It a text doesn't just say something it does something and that these texts these tellings of stories were themselves things that profoundly shaped the nature of the the religious the the community and in this case religious community Uh, and that we need to think more about how even seemingly Sometimes innocuous or, or uh, uh, mundane stories might actually reflect developing social boundaries, political boundaries, religious boundaries and, and inform those boundaries.
0: Well, you did a, a great job and I do hope that listeners will, will pick up the book. Before I let you go though, um, we would love to hear about the types of things you're working on now and uh, hopefully some, some other publications we might see in the future. Great,
1: thanks. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm continuing to do some more work on this genre and thinking about what might be done with some of the, the how the stories are told about the imams. I want to do some more work on how the uh, uh, masculinity is being conceived within this time period, other genres outside of the Shia tradition, that we might be able to look to to see how things like honor and manliness and uh, strength and so forth are conceptualized and talked about within literatures, particularly in biographies and so forth, and, and what that tells us about conceptions of masculinity, masculinity. And another project a lot of these are things that are kind of early stages that I'm dabbling in uh, here and there and, and not sure which one's going to sort of emerge is really the the next uh, uh, full project. But another thing that I'm hoping to do some work on is how these stories of the Imams play out in contemporary Shia piety. Uh, I'm still, uh, I I love my time living in Iran. I'm hoping to go back and do some research uh, and look at how some of the stories that were uh, canonized in this classical period may or may not continue to be told at, uh, at a more popular level at imam days or shia shrines within iran especially and so hopefully i can pursue some of those
0: well matt good luck and thanks for making the time to talk to us hey thanks so much for having me i appreciate it that was my conversation with matthew pierce about his wonderful new book 12 infallible men the imams and the making of Shiism." Published with Harvard University Press in 2016.